we both prioritize a strong work ethic. I mean, I think the big thing is advocacy. You have to find a way to prioritize your mental health, too. I'm coming to you from Nairobi, Kenya this week, a place that holds a special place in my heart. It's where I grew up. And every time I return, I'm amazed at the sheer willpower of the city's inhabitants, how they relentlessly build incredible innovations with seemingly so little. And while Nairobi's tech sector might not rival the colossal tech giants of the U.S., it stands out in its unique way by crafting solutions for local challenges with a fraction of the resources. We call this cheap and dirty, built-at-any-cost spirit, Kuchapa. In Brazil, it's Gambiara. In the Philippines, they call it Descarte. I believe in Russia, it's known as Avoska. And in India, they say Jugad. Across the globe, we have this intrinsic spirit of entrepreneurship that is all about making the most out of the little at hand, finding paths where none seem apparent. It's this dance of resourcefulness and innovation that you find especially pronounced in fast-growing developing economies, in places where the dreams and aspirations of the youth often tower above the conventional resources at their disposal. And so, against all odds, they persevere, they improvise, and in their improvisation, magic unfolds. Now, today's podcast's guests epitomize this Kuchapa spirit. I had the delightful opportunity to converse with Dumebi Ugbuna and Toby Ugbuna, the Dynamo co-founders of Chesi. Now, these siblings are first-generation immigrants relocating from their native Nigeria, a power force of resourceful tech innovation, to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, when they were two and four years old, respectively. Dumebi and Toby brought that Kuchapa spirit with them, and they have achieved again and again against the odds. They have the receipts to prove it, a proven track record of academic excellence at some of the U.S.'s most elite institutions, an illustrious college basketball career on both of their resumes, and early steps at IMB and Accenture. They both beat the odds again and again and know firsthand what it's like to be the only in the room. But they never let that get in their way. And over the years, they've built a sophisticated understanding of the unique difficulties that underrepresented employees face and the insight and community that they need to keep them thriving regardless. But winning for themselves was not enough. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, they felt an urge to build a solution that was not just for themselves, but for others like them. And that's where Chesi came in. So the idea behind Chesi is simple. It's that it's crucial for underrepresented job seekers to understand the experience of working with their particular intersection of identities at a prospective employer. And that can be a major deciding factor when it comes to applying for and ultimately accepting a new position. Now, the challenge though, is that gaining that kind of understanding before starting a new role hasn't historically been easy or even possible. And that's where Chesi comes in. Chesi takes the guesswork out of the hiring process for candidates of color, LGBT plus people, women, veterans, and those with disabilities. They've created a space where diverse professionals can share and learn from real stories, connect with inclusive employers, and ultimately find workplaces where they are appreciated, valued, and given opportunities for growth. Now I had a rich and far-ranging conversation that spanned the founding of the DI space, leveraging personal experience as a catalyst for growth, 
the power and the limitations of family as one pursues entrepreneurship, and the lessons from early wins and challenges that Toby and Dumebi picked up along their path to growth and impact. I'm excited to share some of that conversation with you. So without further ado, here's Dumebi and Toby from Chessie. What inspired you both to co-found Chessy and pursue its mission? So at that time, I was two years into my career at IBM, and I happened to be on a really senior team. So I was working with people who'd been at the company for 20, 30 years, meaning that they were 30, 40 years older than I was, um, and they were all white. (laughs) So I definitely felt like an outlier just being that like I was underrepresented. At the same time, I also happened to find really great mentors and sponsors who were like great advocates for me in my career and like definitely helped yeah. along my like career progression. So I did, was just kind of like evaluating my own experience. I talked to Toby about his experience at Accenture. And at that time he was kind of in the job market looking for, you know, where who's going to go next. And I was also talking to my friends who, you know, entered the yeah. workforce at the same time as me. So I got really interested in the idea of like storytelling, especially around the minority experience. So I think that was for me, like the real start of Diversify, but I'm sure Toby has a different story. Mine is similar. I specifically, I um, was at Accenture. I was working there for five years. Um, about two years in, I really got into diversity and inclusion stuff because I had been doing minority students recruitment at UNC where I went to college. At that point, I decided like, oh, I actually want to maybe pursue this as my career instead of consulting. So I started mm-hmm. looking at jobs. And I remember I specifically found this job at Lyft as a like a DEI you know, manager or something like that. I didn't know anyone that worked at Lyft and I was trying to get a sense of what it was like to work there. So I reached out to this random black guy on LinkedIn. He and I connected and I was like, you know, there should be a way for you to figure out what it's like to be black at these companies. And I kind of shared that experience mm-hmm. with Mr. And that's how we started, as she mentioned, Diversify, which is like our initial idea. Um, and yeah. then we worked on that year had a little bit of traction, but not enough for either of us to feel comfortable, you know, like really pursuing it. So then we pivoted into the ERG space that we're in now. So we've been working on Chessy, like this incarnation of Chessy for close to two years since October, 2021. What are kind of the real day-to-day hindrances or challenges in being the only in the room? Yeah, I think there are two points that I would highlight. Like first, it's like, if you don't see anyone in leadership that looks like you, you don't think that you yourself could end up there. So as mm-hmm. like a Black woman in my entry-level job, not seeing a Black woman is, as a director or senior manager even, I was like, oh, uh-huh. there's no path forward for me at this company. So that's um, it's just like that, like your circumstances really do feel that imposter syndrome of like, there's no way for you to ever get to that position. Yeah. But two, if your coworkers aren't used to working with people who don't don't look like them. So who aren't white, who aren't, you know, from these like middle-class backgrounds, they are definitely more prone to like microaggressions. And one example that I always bring up, because it still kind of sticks with me is like, I was presenting with a white guy who I had started with at IBM to a team of like senior leaders. Um, And the presentation went really well. And then after the presentation, he took a moment to like try and compliment me. But his compliment was like, I love working with Dumebi. She's really great at PowerPoint. Like of all the compliments that you could have given me, given that I had done the bulk of this work, like to be good at PowerPoint is really like demeaning and like undercuts everything, especially because women are already seen as like, they should be really good at administrative or like secretarial work. I don't think he did that like on purpose. I think he was genuinely thought he was giving me a, a compliment. It's difficult to understand what that feels like if you've always seen yourself represented anywhere, right? right? So I think this is often the challenge, like pulling that in there. But like as humans, that is typically how we like chart a path forward. You see somebody who kind of looks and feels like you and we like pick that up right. like by like month six, like that is the human growth. Identify kind of an anchor point, move forward. Identify an anchor point, move forward. And coming to a point and realizing so 
so early that like, I'm going to need to figure that out is definitely not one challenge. And then the second is just this additional cognitive load where because people don't know very many people like you, they've not experienced the diversity of what it means to be a Black woman. I think that's another thing people don't understand. I know what you're not saying is like, Black women are this one thing and you need to learn this one thing to go there. But it's more that actually because of the absence, everybody has these ideas about what you're going to be good at and not good at. And you're constantly working against that in addition to trying to get your job done. Yeah. You know, Toby, anything else you'd kind of add about kind of what makes that real or or why this is a problem to address? Yeah. I mean, I think I would add that there, you use the word load, right? Like it is like burden, right? To carry. Because I think it's like Demaby was telling that story and then she said she doesn't think that he meant it that way. Right. But there's just Mm -hmm. like the mental hurdle that she had to like convince herself that he didn't mean it or that maybe he did and he's out to get me. So now I have to be conscious of like every step that I think because I don't want to give him an opportunity. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah, it's when that we all have to, you have to carry if you're the only person in the room that looks like you on top of, you know, whatever is expected of you of you in your actual job. So, you know, that's often what I think about when somebody, when people talk about that, is that it's just an additional, you know, it's like you're running a race with ankle weights on. Chessy like aims to support any underrepresented cohort within a company today, right? Which means I think a lot of the people who you serve end up being allies as well. I'm really curious what you believe it takes to become an effective ally and how it factors into Chessy's mission. I mean, I think the big thing is advocacy. Actually speaking, like D, you talked about this, um, this manager you had that, that gave you a shout out. It just wasn't the right one. <laughs> you know, that you could call that allyship. It's, it's, it wasn't the best allyship, but I think the allyship is, is actually being in a, if you're in a position of power, being able to speak up for, um, someone that isn't in a position of power, right? Because yeah. otherwise we never kind of elevate into that kind of position. You know, there are basic levels of it where you're just, trying to learn more about like what it's like to be black or yeah. you know, reading books yeah. or you know watching movies or listening to podcasts or whatever but like just being aware of the struggles does much if there's no action behind it advocacy is generally how i i think about it are there examples of companies doing this really well and companies perhaps struggling? What makes the difference? I can't give an ex- a specific yeah. example. I do know I have heard a lot of stories of companies having really clear like allyship guides to where it's mm. like this is a space for this minority group. This is what we expect of our allies. Um, yeah. This isn't a space where we're going to center the voices of our allies. We just kind of want you to listen and provide support where you can. And I think yeah. those are the best examples of that to where it's like because even toby said um almost speaking up for minority groups i think you be cautious of that like i feel like you Mm. can't speak for them you know like you also give them a platform to be able to share their experiences because they're the only ones that know their experiences the groups or the companies that are doing it really well is those who have like really centered the voices of that minority group or those particular like but i've given allies like the correct guidelines on like how i expect you to show up for me that are kind of succeeding in this space to me. Thank you for that. I know I, I kind of took us like off course in the allyship, but I also want to shift gears like completely and, you know, recognize the fact that you guys aren't just co-founders, you're siblings. What do you think it was about your background that made siblinghood something that encouraged you guys to like dive into co-foundership before? We had very similar paths, right? Like we went mm. to schools. We went to went to college. It's not you know that's not, yeah. <laughs> we went to college. Uh, we yeah. both played basketball in college. We both interned at IBM. Maybe ultimately went to work at IBM, but I, you know I kind of went a different avenue there. So we you know when we identified the problem, it was we were both like yeah. 
you know, we both, yeah. there's no like expertise to be done to either person there. I've always wanted to start a company. I don't know, mm-hmm. that maybe I'm caught, you know, she could speak up for herself. I don't know that maybe had that same kind of uh, desire. So in the mm-hmm. earlier days, it was, I think a little bit more of a push for me on this. Mm-hmm. I knew that what goes into a good fa- co-founder isn't even necessarily like someone that has like the skill set that's very different from yours. Even though I think we balance each other out pretty well there. It's really just like a, when you're down, can you have, does this, can this person like pick you up? And the other mm. way around, right? Hmm. This person's swamps. Can you step in for them? And I think we definitely have established and set that up as well. And then we work pretty well from a skill set perspective, just because to maybe um, I'm good from an operational, just like making sure everybody's doing what needs to be done, where you're know, moving yeah. forward, that vision type type of thing. And then to maybe has this just an amazing ability to be friends with anyone within like three minutes. <laughs> uh, and that bodes very well for her. She leads sales and marketing. That's um, a skill that maybe has that I don't necessarily in full transparency, because I think we would probably butt heads a little bit more if we were like right next to each other every day. Me being in Atlanta typically and and um, maybe being in Chicago helps, right? Because we don't have to mm. be right next to each other all the time. It'd be a little bit different if we were just like traditional co-founders that were like college roommates or something like that. Maybe that'd be yeah. a little bit more feasible. I would just add, I think we also just have shared values, which help like Mm. the same upbringing. So like we both prioritize a strong work ethic. We both prioritize Mm. this just thought that we can strive for excellence or we have to strive for excellence. Because I think that's something that our parents ingrained in us. That it's like no dream is too, too big. I think as a founder, this journey can be really almost daunting. Um, And not that like it's not to us sometimes, but I do think we both have this like mindset that like we can do this because we've done, you know, everything else that we've done. And you guys definitely have the receipts from both of your (laughs) backgrounds. And I think like Toby, that was like the implicit thing as, as you were talking through. I think you both independently have proven your ability to be excellent. I think in some really, really similar ways. One of the things about the history, and you guys mentioned this is kind of Chessy is in its latest iteration, isn't the first version of what you guys were picked up, right? Like the first thing was diversify. And so you've needed to make some real strategic shifts. As a founder, as a founder myself, I often know that when I look back, I was too late on my strategic shifts because they feel scary. You're committed to your vision. And it can be really hard to like recognize with clarity, like you both did. Hey, we love this. We see a need, but it isn't like the opportunity we thought it was. Let's move. I'm curious where that clarity of focus in making that change um, happened, like where did it come from? And how do you balance, do maybe what you mentioned, the determination and kind of almost the like blind ambition you need to have to push in a direction as a founder with also like the clarity and raw honesty you need in order to be like, yep, this is not working, time to move on. What did that look like for you? And, and what is that balance today? It wasn't even necessarily um, a strategic decision as much as it was like, yo, this is just not working. We tried a lot. We've been at it for a year and a half. Couldn't find a uh, diversified for anyone listening is that was a a job review platform for minorities. The idea was like, you can go on and we call them stories instead of reviews, but you can go on and find stories from people that worked at like Facebook. In my case, I could filter for those stories and find stories specifically from people that were black. We were like very manually collecting reviews. It was really hard to sell. We made money by helping companies recruit. Recruiting is tough because you have to be able to demonstrate ROI. You know, like yeah. you have to be able to, if I put in a thousand dollars to you, I'm going to get 10 applicants from and black applicants or whatever, right? You just need to be able to demonstrate that. Otherwise, yeah. it's very clear, like this working, but you know, all of those things were happening. We were just like, yo, this is just not, you know, it's like, do you feel comfortable quitting your job for this? No. Do I? No. So. <laughs> That was it. I think the, the, 
the tougher part of it was trying to figure out what to shift to. I will say there was some hesitancy around like actually fully dropping the job mm-hmm. review piece, right? Because we were like, okay, maybe we could do both. We could be like job review over here, software yeah. over here. We had a conversation. Uh, maybe you probably remember this conversation. We had a conversation with Yvonne Hutchinson, who runs like a pretty successful uh, DEI consulting company called Ready Set. And she was like, we were just telling her about the idea and we were trying to do like this. We, I think at this point, we were trying to do a like a DEI management, like, yeah, 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 like a general DEI. Like a Salesforce, but for DEI kind of software. Yeah. And we were like on the cusp of the ERG software idea. And then mm. we talked, we just, her and we were like, so like, what are people saying about the ERG software idea? Mm. We were like, we're having great conversations. You know, we have mock-ups that people are, are, you know, excited about, et cetera. And then like, how are you feeling about the recruiting piece? And you're like, I don't know. We don't really know what to do with it. And she was like, well, mm. I mean, you kind of answer your question. You kind of have to make the decision here to like yeah. shut that down. Letting that go was was difficult because we, you know, we both really felt like it just needed to exist. Glassdoor now does that. Yeah. But- <laughs> and that was another reason I think we were never really like fully into it just because it always felt like Glassdoor could turn it on and we'd just be, you know, we would be out. Yeah. I mean, the, the decision was kind of made for us. I think that the challenge was weighing the possibilities between sticking with trying to do both and just start going all in on this ERG software. And like the decision, once we pivoted into ERG software, like we got our first customer check in like literally two weeks mm. right after we, mm. right. That's, mm. That was a little bit, but it was just, that was like, we like that check came in and we were like, we've never seen this amount of money before for yeah. one person. <laughs> this is what we yeah. need to be doing. You no, know? yeah. that was more money than yeah. we ever made in the last year and a half doing diversify. So we were like, okay, so this is, this is something. And then we got customer two and three and, you know, kept going. So, yeah. You know, you guys have come a really, really long way. And I'm curious if you would share, like, as you think about what Chessie was in those intimate initial moments and how you think of it today, what are the first things or insights that come to mind around what it takes to make that evolution? Kind of from like initial idea to like full-fledged, this is a thing we're doing that you might pass on to somebody who feels like they're where you guys were. So Toby's motto has always been like, find the cheapest way to do something. (laughs) And even today, now that we have a little bit of money, he's like, no, find the cheapest way to do it. So that's just kind of rang through for the last like couple of years. Like anything that we did, it was, okay, let's see if we can do it ourselves. Toby built our Mm. first our first like MVP on Bubble himself. He just like took the time to learn platform. We really wanted to hyper focus on like content. We were doing monthly webinars. We did those in Zoom meetings. I don't I don't even mm-hmm. think we paid for <laughs> 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 like it's like Zoom webinar. And we still yeah. so I think just finding the cheapest and easiest way to do something until an idea is validated to the point where you should invest in it is just something that I would always keep in mind. Um, mm-hmm. And then from a sales perspective, um, I think an easy way to drive easy in air quotes for anyone. Yeah. Um, an easier way to drive like pipeline is content, like really investing into your blog post, really investing into monthly webinars, really investing into mm. just things that people can interact with, get familiar with your brand as like a thought leader. Um, mm. And then start to put out product to they're interested in the product and they'll start to book demos. And then that'll help progress your pipeline too. Are there like any rules of thumb or things you go along that you pass along to marketing another marketing leader in terms of like, sure, okay, I need to have a blog post out there. Sure, I need to have monthly content. But like, how do I make sure I'm like really driving and pushing that into leads? You have to be consistent with it. Like the only way to drive mm. a following to make sure that people have something to come back to. Um, mm. So like those monthly webinars for a while, we were publishing blog posts weekly, new templates mm. weekly. 
And we're, we lost that a little bit. We're trying to get back to that. But that's one thing I would say is just consistency is key. Not everything should be accessible. Like make sure that you have like an email wall, you know, mm-hmm. in front of this content. So you're collecting this data. So then you do have things or people to reach out to as like a follow-up action. That's awesome. I think a really cool way for you guys to give back, even I think is like the real strategic wisdom of like your best advocates are happy customers, right? And like engaged leads. And so how do you figure out how to like set those out into the world and help that energy work for you? One of the things that I heard you both say a little bit earlier was like, okay, you know, like the entrepreneurship path is daunting, but I think actually having like somebody else who's really gung-ho about this allows us to temper that, which I can imagine is actually really, really helpful. But I'm curious if there are ever moments where you like started to potentially lose faith in like Chessy along the journey or your ability to kind of make your dreams happen. What does it look like or what did you pull on to get over that hump? And is there anything you kind of learned through the process that you'd want to pass along? Honestly, no. Mm. For me, there's never been a moment where I've been like, there's, I've never told myself that we can't do this. I've actually, I've mm. le- legitimately never said that. I've obviously had moments where I've been like, wow, this is extremely hard. <laughs> like, mm. and, you know, I, mm. this is extremely taxing. I'm like emotionally drained. I'm mentally drained. But not one time have I thought about quitting or, or thought that we weren't able to do this. And I, that's actually how I know for sure that we're like doing the right things and that we're on, we are like the right team to be solving this problem. Cause we've had, mm. we have competitors that have been like, ah, we got to pivot. I just have like other founders in other spaces. One I just, I just spoke to says like, I'm actually stepping down as CEO. I don't know if she has like personal issues going on, but like she's mm. leaving her company. Right. Yeah. Uh, at this point, like whenever a challenge comes across, I'm like, okay, like this is just gonna, something's gonna happen and this is gonna get fixed. You know, we're religious people and we, you know, we believe in higher power. And I think that's, that's playing a part in it here, but I've never had a doubt that we are the right team to do this so that we can do this for the things that are super daunting, right? Like fundraising is what I'll, I'll that's what I thought you were gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> fundraising was, I've never been as down bad as I was <laughs> fundraising. Like yeah. mentally, just I, I legitimately, that was one time I was like, I don't know if I can keep doing this fundraising yeah. specific. Like in my yeah. head, I was like, we might just got to go back to bootstrapping it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if yeah. I can keep doing this, thing, you know, and it worked out for us, but. Even now, right? After now that I've gone through the fire on fundraising, yeah, I know what we do for our seed raise. And I, I fully if if when that time comes, like I would expect it to be much, much smoother because yeah, I'm a better fundraiser. And that's yeah. the same thing we could do maybe with sales for marketing, for like building an engineering team, for building product, whatever. Like we've proven that we can do it. We yeah. learned our lessons, we do it smoother and more efficiently moving yeah. forward. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I never I've never doubted one our idea or two, mm-hmm. like that we were to do it. I do think that I've had moments like, whoa, this is a lot tougher than I thought it would be. And namely, yeah. I was going to say, Toby, whenever we, last year, you know, we our platform is built on Bubble. Last year, we had made the decision to try and build it on full stack. And we had this outline. We were like, it's going to take four to six months to build it out. And then like our deadline for that, I think was like December 31st or maybe a week before that. Um, yeah. And we got to that day. We're like, there's actually nothing done. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Like, mm. <laughs> it just didn't like the plan that we had so nicely like outlined just didn't really come to fruition. And luckily yeah. we were like, there's still time for us to be on bubble. There's still validation needed. Like there's no real rush for us to make that full yeah. stack transition. And now we were in the process of like revisiting that. And I really want to, I don't want to shy away um, to be from something you mentioned that like, hey, you're both religious. I think that most, uh, probably every successful founder I've met, whether they're like explicitly religious or just kind of have an unexplained belief in like, this is just the way it was meant to be, I think feel connected to like something bigger to make it happen. Because at its core, you're really like creating a reality. 
like around you, which is like a, and I think until you've been a founder, it can be difficult to, to understand just how big and daunting I think that is and how much faith it requires to do. And I think that's actually related to why fundraising is so difficult. Because then once you put your heart and soul into something and then you need to hear 90 no's, I think is like this deeply existential journey. And yet I think what happens is, and you kind of told that story beautifully to be like, and I'm almost like looking forward to like my seed raise because I know what to do, is it's a little bit of trial by fire. Because being able to get through the 90 to get to the one, actually, and I always say like kind of getting your first round of funding is much less about what you were able to do to get that yes, but what you were able to do to withstand the no's. And I'm actually much more interested in like what that tells me about a team and why I get excited to kind of go forward and, and invest, I think, in folks who are doing that. As you think about where you are now, what are like the top three pieces of advice you're like, man, I really wish we'd have known that. I think that may have made things easier, faster. I don't know. Like just what comes to mind for you on that front? Okay. So uh, it's a couple of things around fundraising. I would start by, I would tell the, you know, the young version of me, young as in a year ago, <laughs> I would tell that person uh, <laughs> to pitch the vision, right? Mm. Not the track. And I think mm. that was what I got from her name is Christina. I'm not, I'm blanking on her last name, but she's the founder of Banta and we use yeah. Banta for you. And I emailed her just to like get candid feedback. And so that was one of the thing that she told me is, you know, we were at that point, we had like eight or nine customers, which is way more traction and revenue than a lot of my counterparts had, like founders. Yeah. That were similar. And I had seen them gone, go on a raise, like one in particular, they raised like 3 million, right? Yeah. With, with like idea. And I was yeah. like, yo, you have customers, you have revenue, like you're good. Like when you, you know what I mean? You should be a raise. Yeah. The mistake I made early on was pitching that traction, right? Mm. Because I think a lot of VCs, not even, I think most VCs are going for like these massive outcomes and they're just kind of yeah. struggling with how big an ERG software platform can be, right? Well, once we started pitching the vision of like using ERGs as focus groups for marketing teams and referrals, and referral engines for sales teams and for recruiting mm. teams, and, you know, really, really helping companies with just general business practices and goals. Would you literally be on this call, Thomas? And I would, if I, and when I started pitching it that way, I'd see people be like, oh, you know, like they would like, yeah. basically like, like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like you, you, yeah. you're onto something. Hmm. And then the traction was more of just like, a, okay, he's done this already. And it, you yeah. know, I started all that when fundraising, it really is about confidence. And if mm. you can go in, when I started going there and acting like, yeah, we got these nine customers, but don't worry about that. Like focus on the, you know, focus on this big vision that I'm selling you. They're like, don't yeah. worry about these nine enterprise customers that you're signing. Like you're not, yeah. you don't think that's a big, like, and you, you just really downplay it. That's a very big piece of evidence I would have for fundraising. I'm trying to think these, I want to, you know, let you kind of talk about maybe sales and marketing that you have, but just team building. I think maybe from the team building standpoint, I'd say go with your gut, trying to recruit and stuff like that. I think uh, go with your gut is one and two. It's kind of like a, a two B index most on the people that want to work for you, you know, mm. more than it's like you obviously need to be able to do the job and that sort of thing. But if someone lets like is very clearly interested in working with you on that, right? There are mm. a lot of people out there that just want to work at an early stage startup. Yeah. That's really it. Yeah. Like the freedom, the autonomy, and the control. It doesn't really matter what startup, it's just any startup, right? And yeah. I think why you heavily on when recruiting is like why this startup, right? Why Chesney yeah. specifically? And if you don't have a good answer for that, I don't I, you could have been employee two at Snapchat. I'd probably be like, okay, well, you know, we're good. We'll we'll keep looking, you know. So yeah, uh, those are two for me, I'll say. Um maybe maybe you have one or two more you want to add. 
Um, I think tactically from a sales standpoint, for me, it's like the importance of maintaining relationships. Like there's so many people that I met in like the early stages of Chesi when we were just kind of doing discovery to now that they are continuously engaged in our community. They're continuously engaging with our content. I've now had discovery calls with them. Now they're in our pipeline. So it's like this longstanding relationship that I never, I don't think I realized like when I first made that touch point that it would be the importance of investing in that, even if they don't have the funds right now to be a customer, yeah. like come back. They will eventually yeah. come back and be like, got the budget. Like, let me explore your platform now. I think that's just something that I never really realize even having a sales background. Personally, I would just kind of tell my younger self that I am capable of doing the job that I'm doing right now. You know, at IBM, I was in a sales organization, but I was primarily working in the channel. So I wasn't doing like, you know, deals. You know, I wasn't a kind of client. So now in Chesi, I'm like leading our sales motion at customer facing like role. And I don't know, I would just kind of tell myself that I am capable of doing it because I have been successful. Yeah. I have you know, doubled ARR. I have hit us like a million in pipeline. You know, like there are some yeah. things that I have. I think if I could have just taken that like, or I could have given my younger self that confidence boost, I think it would have been super helpful. And I love how both of you, I think the answer is very, very different worlds, but like come back to confidence, right? Like it comes back to like, hey, and I've told myself like, you can really do this and like walk into the room like you can really do this. But that's so easy to say, I think like so difficult to build. And like in my experience is really built through the fire. Like I'm yet to figure out somebody who's able to figure out the way to get there like one year ago self to do it. Except maybe to say, like, when you face your next challenge, I know that two years from now, that's what I'll tell myself. You didn't need to worry as much. So, like, how do I just believe that now? Um, You know, if we look ahead three to five years, I'm curious what you each want to be able to say about Chesi and, like, why that matters to you. I was thinking about this when I was was talking to Avery, who's our most recent engineer hire. I think that everyone on our team has joined because they like they want an opportunity to create something special, right? That mm-hmm. to like build a platform that is helping companies build more inclusive workplaces, but is also helping them be more inclusive as they drive for their business goals. You know, in three to five years, I actually want to look at our customers and see that they've given that same opportunity that we have every day to build more inclusive workplaces to their to all the employees, regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not they actually got the DEI team. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Jesse, you could be a a marketing analyst, right? That's just not that's not necessarily working on anything DEI related in their day job. You are now working with your uh your sales team because you have a bunch of black founders in your network that they can basically they should go out and talk to, right? So you believe mm. in diverse per- a diverse pipeline for your sales team, that sort of thing. Yeah. That's what I want to be able to say. I think that's what s- success looks like to me is creating opportunities for employees at our customers, right? To build on the inclusivity that the companies have or don't have. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. It's just that we created more inclusive workplaces. I think on a micro level, I also want to say that we changed the way that people think about ERGs. Um, mm. I think if you ask like the everyday person, they're like, oh, they're cute. You know, they're like happy yeah. hour. They want to be, you know, <laughs> yeah. to volunteer, you know? You know um, like, yeah, minorities need a social right, club too. Exactly. They just need a little tribe. Um <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to be able to say that we like kind of shifted the mindset of like ERGs from this cutesy happy hour thing to something that is actually contributing to bottom line. And it has actually shifted the way that people care about ERGs. Like now senior leaderships mm-hmm. are completely bought in because they see how ERGs can drive uh, not only like people goals and whatever, but like the bottom line that's actually driving mm-hmm. towards like. So I want to be able to say that like our platform was the one that kind of made that transition for ERGs on a micro yeah. level. One of the reasons I don't just love that, but kind of feel the urgency around what Chesie is doing here is 
I think during the good times, like the social club argument is is pretty good. And I think one interesting thing, just talking about the cultural moment that we were in is like 2020. I think we were both kind of having this like massive reckoning with like racial justice in the country. And also from at least a tech company perspective, this like huge unexpected boom in the market, right? And so it was good times and there was a lot of excess money. And so I think it was actually pretty easy to like make the argument for like an ERG because it's like, what are we going to do with this money? Why don't we do something to like feel right. like we're addressing the moment? But I think I see a lot of companies today and folks leading ERGs or DI teams today really struggling because the business case for the ERGs was never fully articulated. And so as we're now in a completely different like macroeconomic environment, that support all dwindles up because we can't answer the questions that you just called out. And in some ways, not in some ways, I think in every way, if we're ever truly going to get to that vision of inclusive companies, it can't just be this like nice thing the company is doing, like ultimately capitalism. It has to somehow drive like revenue. And like the clearer you can, the clearer you can make that picture, I think with like tools like Tezzy, I think the more lasting the change is going to be. And I think we all feel kind of tired of three steps forward, two steps back, or sometimes two steps forward, five steps back um, on this point. And I'm really grateful to have both of you on the forefront, um, making like real change on that, on that front. Thanks, Thomas. Is there anything as you think about either the journey of Chessie or advice you'd like to give to aspiring founders who hope they are you, you know, in the next couple of years? I would say on a personal note, you have to find a way to prioritize your mental health too. I think both of us are actually in therapy um, and we have been for the duration of, you know, this experience. It's really easy to internalize a lot of the no's or the you know, people not really believing in your idea. It's really easy to internalize that as like, oh, I'm not capable of this or like, oh, I'm not who I say, who I think that I am or like, so it's it's just nice to have an outlet to either talk about that experience or to, even if it's not therapy, just like having a way to still kind of prioritize you and your kind of well-being. I would make sure that that's kind of top of mind as you step into this. Before we end an episode of the Venture Visionaries podcast, we love to feature spoken stories, a recurring segment where we hear from the people behind the people behind the business, those who make it work. Now, typically, we're talking to employees at a company, but we decided to mix things up this week. I wanted to talk to some of the other powerful voices behind a company, their customers and their investors. Let's hear from each of them now. First up, we have Donald Knight, Chief People Officer at Greenhouse. Why am I excited about Chessie? It's the same reason why Levi Strauss was excited about the gold rush. He understood that people with the right talent and the right intentions still need the right tools in order for them to be successful. And at Greenhouse, we foster an environment of belonging. We want Greenies, no matter where they are in the world, to know that we prioritize inclusion, diversity, equity, and allyship. Our employee resource groups needed a consistent platform to communicate, plan events, and even manage their budget. So I'm excited about Chessie because they're not just unlocking value for Greenhouse, but they're unlocking value for everybody. Here's what Carmen Palafox, founding partner at 2045 Ventures, had to say. The demographics in the United States are changing. In fact, over 50% of the population under 16 are racially diverse. And so as an investor, Chessie's mission to build a more inclusive workforce resonates. It's a growing opportunity. And the founders have lived experience working at big enterprise to make their solution relevant. 
Jesse Contreras is the founding software engineer at Chesi. And here's what he had to say. I see Chesi as an agent for change. Chesi's overarching goal is to help companies foster an environment of inclusivity for those finding their way in the professional world. And we know that if we elevate individuals who thrive in ERGs, this affects positive change in their life. And I happen to believe that that affects positive change societally. And that's what excites me the most about Chesi. That's it for this week, folks. Your time is a gift, and I'm grateful to have spent it with you. And remember, in the words of James Baldwin, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. So go ahead and face it today. I'm Thomas. Thomas.